All right, um, get started here. Uh, my name's Evan Rose, and I'm doing the forum for today. Um, this past summer, I went to my 50th college reunion, and on the way, as I often do, I looked for places to stop. And I had been through Memphis uh, 10 years ago, and I had seen that there was the Lorraine Motel, which is where Martin Luther King was assassinated back in 1968. And I hadn't realized that it had become a museum. So I didn't get a chance to visit there in 2012, but 10 years later when I went to my most recent reunion, I stopped there um, to see it. So the picture you see on the left there is the Lorraine Motel. And that picture I actually took in 2012. And um, on the right is a wreath. That's where Martin Luther King was, um, was killed. And then there's a little plaque in the front there. And I'll read that to you. It's a, a quote from Genesis. They said one to another, behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Does anyone recognize that quote? Um, it's the brothers deciding to uh, kill Joseph. Joseph is the dreamer. Um, with much of Martin Luther King's career, uh, there were biblical uh, references, and this, this is one of those made after his death. Okay, so the Lorraine Motel was historic in, in that it was uh, owned by a black man, uh, and he operated it for many years, and it was a place where black people could stay as they traveled around in the South. And if you know something about history, you know that that was a rare thing, to be able to find a place to stay. I believe there's a book called, the uh, story called The Green Book. The Green Book was about uh, places you could stay in the South if you were black. The National Civil Rights Museum opened in 1991. It was renovated and updated uh, 2012 to 2014. And what had happened was that uh, the museum was opened in 91 because that's when it became, um, it no longer was a motel. And if I understand right, the state of uh, Tennessee owns it now. And the renovations were to make it uh, modernize it and make it more interactive as most museums are today. And, um, and so you get a chance to see this, which is you know, less than 10 years old. So when you g first go in, the introductory part is about slavery and um, gives you an explanation of uh, how it operated. Uh, in the upper right is uh, a statue, uh, two statues, a man, basically auctioning a, a, a woman and her baby. And then down below is, it's hard to see in this light, but it's a model of a ship and those seated figures are there giving you some idea about how cramped the quarters were on a slave ship bringing people from Africa. Uh, then there's a, a display here um, about uh, Africa and uh, the societies and where the people came from. And you'll notice that 
there are sites along the west coast of Africa that indicate where a lot of the slaves came from, the ones at least that were desi um, destined for the western hemisphere. Um, what this doesn't show is on the east coast there was also a slave trade, and that slave trade was operated mostly by, by Arabs and, and serviced a lot of the Arab world. Um, one of the things I discovered in my reading fairly recently is that slavery had existed uh, for a long time in, in Arabia, but um, with the coming of Muhammad and uh, the conversion to Islam, uh, it was forbidden to make slaves of fellow uh, Muslims. And so uh, the Arabs turned to Africa. Uh, there's also a little bit of display in terms of the culture of the West Africans um, who became slaves, uh, showing some of the um, uh, some of the dress. So here's an outfit that someone would have worn from uh, from that area. So then, from um, kind of a background, where do the people come from? Uh, how does how does slavery work? Uh, we get to more of the economics. And this was something that really caught my attention um, because it got into sort of the finer details of how did slavery operate and why was it so tenacious. Um, and uh, they had this nice display showing the, the different products that slavery produced throughout the South and where the wealth came from. And so it went into four... Um, products, uh, tobacco, rice, sugar and rum, cotton, all of, all of these were plantation um, products and required a lot of labor and also tended to be um, high profit items in, in terms of uh, return on investment. And then um, another part of the economics are the slaves themselves as human property. The value of the slaves as the exhibit explains, um, exceeded the value of many other industries in the United States at the time. It was sort of the preeminent um, resource, uh, source, uh, um, what would you call it, just um, uh, wealth, wealth of the nation. Um, and so you think about it, um, there was a great economic benefit in this institution but it was also kind of uniformly understood that it was an evil at the same time. Um, and I, I think the reason it persisted so long was just that it was so very profitable. And, and that's the point that they're making here. Um, so then it goes from um, slavery, where did the people come from, what was the wealth that developed, to uh, re resistance to slavery, uh, this is before the Civil War. Uh, so there is a panel that discusses different people, uh, their contributions, and uh, the aspects of resistance to slavery. Uh, one of the quotes here that caught my attention, that's the one from the uh, image in the lower right. Um, you cannot be more oppressed than you have been. You cannot suffer greater cruelties than you already have. Rather die free men than live to be slaves. And that was Henry Highland um, Garnet in 1843. 
So then going from um, the uh, pre-Civil War, we go to post-Civil War, uh, where we're dealing with, it's, it's hard to see, but uh, in the upper, upper left, uh, that's Jim Crow laws. And so after the Civil War, um, there was um, a re return, there was a brief period and then a return to uh, oppression. And then um, this part of the exhibit uh, talks about how people then worked for civil rights and uh, some of the incremental progress that was made. So one of the people that is celebrated is Charles Hamilton Houston. And um, in this display, they were talking about how he won a case in 1936 to have a black man admitted to the Maryland University of Maryland School of Law. It was um, one of the issues for a long time was that although black citizens paid, paid taxes and supported public institutions, often they were barred from those institutions. And so there was a steady chipping away at, at those restrictions. Um, Board of Education is the one that's familiar to most people. I believe that was in 1954. Um, and so this was on the, on the road to that. Um, Charles Hamilton Houston was the first black editor of the Harvard Law Review. He directed the Howard University Law School, and that school produced Supreme Court um, Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall. He was also the first head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So then um, there are other displays here go on to talk about um, sort of the pillars or the elements of black community. So they've got church, homes and land, education, um, the black press, arts and entertainment. And, and some of these um, exhibits are also interactive where you can go up to a screen or you can listen to a presentation. Um, then the, the exhibits uh, continue to talk about uh, more modern day protests, things like in the 1950s uh, up through sort of the present day. So there were bus boycotts. Uh, that was in, I believe, 1955, Rosa Parks. Um, they were, um, there's an exhibit here on, on people who were um, kind of victimized as, as they tried to work for civil rights. Then this one I found interesting, uh, the nonviolence ethic. And so here's a, here's a pledge, sort of, a, I guess, a covenant, if you will. Um, and so people who are going out to do this nonviolent work, you know, they, they were trained. So you didn't just sort of volunteer and go out. You got training. And sometimes the training involved uh, people who were giving you the training to um, practice humiliating you so that you would be able to to bear the uh, the abuse that you would face if you were at a lunch counter or on some other um, demonstration um, you were ready for that so you didn't have to face that for the first time um, so I'll, I'll read this um, I hereby pledge myself my person and body to the nonviolent movement therefore I will keep the following ten commandments one Meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. 
Two, remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Three, walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Four, pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Five, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Six, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. Seven, seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Eight, refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Nine, strive to be in good spirit and bodily health. Ten, follow the directions of the movement and the captain on a demonstration. I sign this pledge having seriously considered what I do and with a determination and will to persevere. Kind of inspiring. So then of the exhibits, and there were many, there were, uh, there were exhibits on lunch counter uh, demonstrations. Um, um, and it, it, it's a fairly comprehensive. But this was the one that caught my attention. This is um, looking from above, there's a second story uh, down on this bus, and this is a uh, replica of the bus that was actually burned. Um, the Freedom Riders were attacked in Anniston, Alabama, and uh, the bus they were on was set on fire uh, with them inside. Um, so the story behind this was that interstate bus travel was desegregated. So. We saw earlier um, Hamilton, who was trying to um, work for um, uh, desegregation, getting a student into um, Maryland, for example, University of Maryland. Um, so there, there were some tools, there's some levers that could be pulled. And one of them was uh, through the federal government. And the way that you pulled that lever was there was federal interstate commerce, which the federal government has um, jurisdiction over. And so if you couldn't go and do something with the individual state, you could kind of get to them by doing something like interstate uh, commerce. And so that was the idea here, was the um, bus travel was desegregated. And so the Freedom Riders were a group that would ride interstate buses in integrated groups. Um, so this, this bus, um, the original of this bus was attacked at a bus terminal um, in Alabama, and then it was stopped again and attacked uh, on the highway. Uh, it was firebombed, the passengers were inside. Uh, they were holding the doors shut so people could not get out, but then the gas tank on the bus began to, um, uh, to burn, and people ran away because they didn't want to be engulfed by an explosion. Um, the uh, people on the bus got off, and then they were beaten um, by the highway, and, uh, and later also arrested the passengers on the bus. Um, so I, f I found this to be um, rather chilling, and also a real vivid demonstration of, of what was happening at the time. You know, you can read about it, but I think seeing it um, really brings it, brings it home. Uh, I found another article, um, there's a, uh, it's a USA Today associated newspaper called The Tennessean, and in 2021, they ran an article about 
the Freedom Riders. It was the uh, 60th, 60th anniversary. And so they talked about various museums where you could see exhibits on the Freedom Riders. And they also showed a bus, um, a picture of a bus, I believe it was this bus, that had been set on fire um, as part of a, um, I don't know if you call it a celebration, but a um, commemoration of the, of the original uh, uh, attack. And that was done in uh, 1991 on the 30th anniversary, and uh, coincidentally the year that this museum opened. And then um, also in the museum is this, uh, it's a garbage truck. Um, and if you remember, Martin Luther King was in Memphis as part of his Poor People's Campaign, and he was there to promote the sanitation workers. And at the time, they were treated very poorly, and there were two tiers of sanitation workers. There were the white sanitation workers, who typically drove the trucks, and if their um, work schedule was cut short by bad weather, they were paid for the rest of the day, whereas the black sanitation workers were typically the guys who threw the garbage in the back and uh, did all the, um, the really basic manual work. And if their workday was called short, they were not paid for the rest of the day. So um, Martin Luther King was in the process of, you might say, broadening his, um, his campaign to be more inclusive of poor people in general um, beyond um, uh, black people. Uh, the museum also has a display, which I haven't shown here, that uh, addresses some of that, that in the campaign for uh, black civil rights, there's also been a parallel campaign and an emphasis on general civil rights, including things like farm workers, uh, which most people are familiar with. So after I visited Memphis, uh, I, w I went on, I wanted to see Harper's Ferry. And several years ago, I've, I gave some talks here. One was on a, a different tour that I took through the South on civil rights, um, and that was Selma, Birmingham, and Montgomery. And I also once gave a talk on uh, John Brown, and there was an exhibit for John Brown in the Akron Art Museum some years ago, and John Brown had spent some time in Akron. Um, so I was interested in seeing Harper's Ferry. So Harper's Ferry was in 1859, two years before the start of the Civil War, and some people would say that um, John Brown was instrumental, certainly instrumental, in increasing the tensions and the animosity between uh, abolitionists and, um, and people in the South um, through this raid. Um, so there's a there, that's a famous picture, and I've forgotten the name of the artist right now, um, of, of John Brown and his um, almost biblical <laughs> um, stance here. So Harper's Ferry 
was a federally owned, it was a government town. So it was much like <laughs> uh, Los Alamos was a government town to produce nuclear weapons, to research and produce nuclear weapons. Harper's Ferry was an armory that produced the muskets and then later rifles that were used on the, with the American Army, with the United States Army. And so this has kind of a depiction of what it looked like back in the, um, around the time of John Brown. And you'll notice there are two rivers. Uh, one is the um, Shenandoah and the other is the Potomac. So this is where the, uh, the confluence of those two rivers comes together. And it also was the Achilles heel if you will, of Harpers Ferry, because from time to time it would flood. And so if you go to Harpers Ferry, there's not much in the way of original buildings anymore because it's, it's been flooded several times. Um, so this is what it looks like if you go through the town. Um, there's a, a kind of a, it's a, it's a national site. Forget if it's, a, if it's a park or just a monument. But um, upper left is, is one of the town, uh, town streets. Um, down below is um, some old um, bridge work. Uh, there's a tunnel that you can barely see in the middle towards the right. Uh, there's a railroad tunnel there. And then there's a display of, of uh, rifles and muskets. So the idea was John Brown was going to go there. He was going there with a group, I believe it was 24 people. The idea was there would be this, he'd start an insurrection. The local uh, slaves would rise to join his group, and they would, they would take the weapons and then sweep through the South um, and continue. It would be a self-sustaining uh, rebellion. Um, but it worked out very badly for John Brown, and um, by the second day, they were defeated. It was, took about 36 hours, and... Um, about half of them were killed, and there, uh, most of the rest of them were hung, um, hanged later. Um, so it didn't work out. And um, many of the people who knew of his plans thought it was crazy and that it would not, would not work, and, and indeed they were correct. Um, yeah. um, so there's a whole panel of quotations there. If, if, as you go around, there's a very nice display that talks about John Brown and his attempts, gives you the background, gives you some history. Um, here's a panel of quotes that, that's there. Uh, there's also a little film that you can watch um, that, uh, that, that talks about the insurrection. Um, and these quotes are interesting. Um, and it goes to the uh, concept that people knew that slavery was an evil, even the slaveholders did, but yet they continued in the practice, um, which I haven't quite figured out. But um, so here's one by George Washington, 1786. There is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it, slavery, but there is only one proper way and effectual mode by which it can be accomplished, and that is by legislative authority. Um, so I, I don't know if it, maybe this is like uh, taking a problem and kicking it down the road, um, but it's, it's sort of like we got to do something about it, but now is not the right time. That's kind of what he's saying. Um, and I think 
we saw that in the civil rights movement in the 60s because there was a, um, a plea by some people to go slow. And um, that just infuriated the civil rights workers because, you know, how slow can it be? And so there are some other quotes here. Um, some of them I found interesting because they basically stated it like, um, um, so Stephen Douglas, okay, who was running against um, uh, <coughs> Lincoln. I do not think that the Negro is in any, is, is any kin of mine at all. I believe that this government of ours was founded and wisely founded upon the white basis. It was made by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity to be executed and managed by white men. So, I mean, that was a freely stated opinion at that time, and this man stood behind that, and it has some echoes and things that we hear today. Um, all right, I won't belabor this. So when John Brown went in, um, there were a bunch of lances that was, they didn't have a lot of firearms, but they did have these that were made specifically for the insurrection. Um, they were going to Harper's Ferry to augment their, their weapons uh, with firearms. Um, a little display in the upper right. Um, and then um, there's this uh, sort of cast of characters here about who was, who was involved um, in the raid. Another thing that I found interesting was there was a group called the Secret Six. Have people heard of the Secret Six? Okay. So the Secret Six were six abolitionists who backed John Brown uh, financially. And it turned out one of those people was um, Theodore Parker uh, out of Lexington, Massachusetts. And he was one of the secret six. Well, after John Brown was apprehended and put on trial, um, it came out who these people were. And uh, three or four of them were just mortified that they were discovered. And especially now after having um, backed an unsuccessful insurrection. Um, some of them uh, fled, um, some of them tried to hide, um, but Theodore Parker did not. He was one of two who sort of stood up and said, yeah, that was me and I'm proud of it. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, Frederick Douglass was involved in a way. He visited John Brown in um, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, before uh, John Brown took his group uh, to attack um, Harper's Ferry. Um, Douglas did not participate. Douglas was one of those people who looked at this and said, this is nuts, this is not gonna work. I, I, can't, I can't back this. Um, to cover his, the fact that he, the reason he was in Chambersburg was to meet with uh, John Brown, who was going under the name Smith, um, he gave a lecture. And Chambersburg was a hotbed of um, uh, abolitionist uh, fervor and a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, 
let's see. An interesting, so there's a, a plaque that you can see if you go to Chambersburg. And I, I did stop in Chambersburg and, um, and walked around the town. Um, so it says, boarded in this house for a while in the summer of 1859 under the name of Smith. While in Chambersburg, he secretly received firearms and ammunition. Later in 1859, Brown led a raid on the arsenal at Harper's Ferry. So in um, 1864, the Confederate Army came in uh, to Chambersburg, and um, they held the town for ransom. They said, well, give us half a million dollars. And um, ostensibly, that was to pay for destruction of homes by the Union Army in the Shenandoah Valley. They said, give us the money or we'll burn down the town. And the people could not come up with the money, so they burned down the town, the um, Confederate Army. I found that was interesting. Oh, and if you go there, there's a reenactment of that every year. And then on a more positive note, um, I stopped in um, Cumberland in Maryland. It's a railroad town. And... Uh, they were having their Juneteenth celebration. And so this um, was Sojourner Truth, um, a float that they took through town. So, um, well, history lives on, I guess. Uh, does anyone have any questions? When you showed the garbage truck and stated about the um, the settlement that they made did you hear what I mean did did you know the purpose of that garbage truck besides being a representative of the the two black men who were found dead in that were part of the movement and they they, they were really just camping out just hiding out So, so they were in the tr they were in the truck, and then they they were found they were murdered. Okay, thank you so much. When uh, I was in high school. Our, the Catholic priest that was heading our religion class said, I'm going to be marching in Vicksburg and we're going to walk six miles to the river and back. And it is to, on, to um, express our feelings or our disgust about the two men who died. And they were in the negotiating party for getting them a better raise. And they did get a better raise but it was, it was nothing. I mean, it was just minute. They were going to get paid for a day. That was how much they accomplished in that one three-month tra uh, transaction or discussion. And that's what we marched against, is the fact that they were found. Those two people who had been voices for the other people were found dead. Thank you so much. Yeah, so um, yeah, Susan was, was filling, filling us in 
on some of the details regarding that uh, uh, the garbage truck. Um, I would say that I cannot really do justice to the exhibits at that um, that museum, at the Civil Rights Museum, in a short talk like this. And I would say that you could s easily spend multiple visits uh, going to that museum, and uh, you would continue to learn. I found that also um, what was interesting to me was I went to a museum that was in Birmingham, and I found that that museum also had a lot of similar displays to the one in Memphis. And so you don't have to necessarily go to the Memphis one to learn about the civil rights um, activities. You can learn that in, in other sites as well. Um, so I encourage you, if you find yourself in um, one of the cities, typically in the South, where you can find one of these civil rights museums, uh, they're well worth a visit. Um, and I've been to probably four or five now. Um, so any other thoughts, questions? Yes. Just um, sort of a thought that came to me as you were talking about um, the four crops that slavery really enabled to flourish and be enormously profitable, and then there was human property. And um, from reading that book, Cast, um, you know, it sort of lays out all the different pieces that create a very, very strong caste system. And um, one of them is that if you define the worth of the child by the state of the mother rather than the father, then you can hold all these children that are being um, born out of the, as a result of rape, <laughs> you can hold them in bondage just like the mother is held in bondage. And that that was contrary to English law. English law sort of defined a child's status by the status of the father. But um, early on in the 1600s, 1700s, slaveholders had figured out that if you define the child by the state of the mother, then you can just have a whole lot more slaves. And so I think it, I guess what occurred to me was just that there's a tendency to think of white masters having sex with their black enslaved women as being about oppression or um, lust, um, but it was also just enormously economically incentivized. And especially if white people in the South thought of paler skinned enslaved people as being more valuable than darker skinned, you know, often the house servants and so forth were going to be mulattoes. And so I think it just that whole thing about how the wealth of human bondage got expanded through that particular piece of it is something we, we don't think about very much, but just it's been on my mind more since reading cast. Thank you, Tyler. 
Anything else? All right. Thank you all for coming, and uh, hope that's been interesting and maybe educational. <laughs>